The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently, we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat Good day, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people, all the boot rockers in the house, and anybody else I may have missed, to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution, not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, and for Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns about. I hold to the book, The Bible. As the authoritative word of God, glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsofLibertyRadio.com and also SonsofLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of the radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right, and see the face that's made for radio, head over to SonsofLibertyMedia.com and there you're going to see two videos at the top of the page. The one on the left side of the page is Bradley's show from the previous day. So if you missed that and you'd like to catch that, you can do so up until 3 o'clock Eastern today, at which time he'll be live in that little area right there. On the right side of the page is where we're at. Click on the play button, blow it up on whatever device you got. Look for the rumble icon, bottom right-hand corner. If you click on that, you can join us in the chat. Lots of friends there this morning. Good to see you guys. And uh, also, please subscribe to the channel there. It's Sons of Liberty Radio Live. Sons of Liberty Radio Live on Rumble. And uh, yeah, we would appreciate your support in subscribing to the channel. Also, before it's news.com, top of the page there. And we thank the guys for giving us a spot over there. Back at sonsoflibertymedia.com, right up under where we're streaming live. Please sign up for our email newsletter uh, that goes out once a day, late afternoon, early evening. All the articles we have for sonsoflibertymedia.com, including the morning show archive. So if you uh, if you want to get that, Right there in your e- email inbox, or it might even go to your spam box. I mean, depending on the service provider. I mean, at every level, we're being censored in one way or another. So uh, <clears throat> if you have any problem, just let me know, okay? All right, one quick thing. Actually, two quick things. Tomorrow, James Roguski, Lord willing, I'm going to play that interview that I had with him. And then Friday, we're going to have uh, Corey Hillis on, Lord willing. going to do the interview with him today since I'll be in Texas. By the way, if you want to, even if you can't travel there, they have the ability for you to see this virtually. Okay, uh, Healing for the Ages conference, and that's going to take place on third, on excuse me, Friday and Saturday, uh, September eighth and 9th, down there in Texas. If you want to go, you can go. Uh, they got tickets there. But for those of you who want to attend by virtual, um, the meeting that they have set up, then you can get ten percent off of that by using the promo code Tim if you want to catch that. And that's what we're going to be. Now, one of the things I want to do before I get into 
it's going to be a long, but I'm, we're basically just going to go through some scripture here, a uh, particular passage, in fact, and, uh, and make some challenges to ourselves this morning. But I wanted to, I meant to, pl- I had this pulled up and I don't know why I didn't play it yesterday because this is classic for what we were speaking about yesterday. Okay. So if you, if you don't know why I'm playing this, uh, go back and listen to yesterday's show. <laughs> about feds being armed with submachine guns, okay? This is from 1997 and we've been we were warned about this stuff about a standing army by our founding fathers anyway. But this is from 1997. This is Ron Paul speaking out about this and warning the people about what they were doing in 1997. Take a listen. Time of the gentleman from Pennsylvania has expired. The gentleman from Texas, Mr. Paul, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, earlier this year, another member severely criticized me on the House floor for declaring on C-SPAN that indeed many Americans justifiably feared their own government. This fear has come from the police state mentality that prompted Ruby Ridge, Waco, and many other episodes of an errant federal government. Under the Constitution, there was never meant to be a federal police force. Even an FBI limited only to investigations was not accepted until this century. Yet today, fueled by the federal government's misdirected war on drugs, radical environmentalism, and the aggressive behavior of the nanny state, we have witnessed the massive buildup of a virtual army of armed regulators prowling the states where they have no legal authority. The sacrifice of individual responsibility and the concept of local government by the majority of American citizens has permitted the army of bureaucrats to thrive. We have depended on government for so much for so long that we as a people have become less vigilant of our liberties. And as long as the government provides largesse for the majority, the special interest lobbyists will succeed in continuing the redistributive redistribution of welfare programs that occupies most of Congress's legislative time. Wealth is limited, yet demands are unlimited. A welfare system inevitably diminishes production and shrinks the economic pie. As this occurs, anger among the competing special interests grows. While Congress and the people concentrate on material welfare and its equal redistribution, the principles of liberty are ignored and freedom is undermined. And more immediate, the enforcement of the interventionist state requires a growing army of bureaucrats. Since groups demanding special favors from the federal government must abuse the rights and property of those who produce wealth and cherish liberty, real resentment is directed at the agents who come to eat out our substance. The natural consequence is for the intruders to arm themselves to protect against angry victims of government intrusion. Thanks to a recent article by Joseph Farah, director of the Western Journalism Center of Sacramento, California, appearing in the Houston Chronicle, the surge in the number of armed federal bureaucrats have been brought to our attention. Farrah points out that in 1996 alone, at least 2,439 new federal cops were authorized to carry firearms. That takes the total up to nearly 60,000. Farrah points out that these cops were not only in agencies like the FBI, but include the EPA, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, the Army Corps of Engineers. 
Even Bruce Babbitt, according to Farah, wants to arm the Bureau of Land Management. Farah logically asks, when will the NEA have its armed art cops? This is a dangerous trend. It's ironic that the proliferation of guns in the hands of the bureaucrats is pushed by the anti-gun fanatics who hate the Second Amendment and would disarm every law-abiding American citizen. Yes, we need gun control. We need to disarm our bureaucrats, then abolish the agencies. If government bureaucrats like guns that much, let them seek work with the NRA. Force and intimidation are the tools of tyrants. Intimidation with government guns and the threat of imprisonment and the fear of harassment by government agents put fear into the hearts of millions of Americans. Four days after Paula Jones refused a settlement in her celebrated suit, she received notice that she and her husband would be audited for 1995 taxes. Since 1994 is the current audit year for the IRS, the administration's denial that the audit is related to the suit is suspect, to say the least. Even if it is coincidental, don't try to convince the American people. Most Americans, justifiably cynical and untrusting toward the federal government, know the existence, the evidence exists that since the 1970s, both Republican and Democratic administrations have not hesitated to intimidate their political enemies with IRS audits and regulatory harassment. Even though the average IRS agent doesn't carry a gun, the threat of incarceration and seizure of property is backed up by many guns. All government power is ultimately gun power and serves the interests of those who despise or do not comprehend the principles of liberty. The gun in the hands of law-abiding citizens serve to hold in check arrogant and aggressive government. Guns in the hands of the bureaucrats do the opposite. The founders of this country fully understood this fact. And I yield back. The time of the job. All right, so... Boy, if I don't kind of light your fire, your wood's wet, right? I mean, <clears throat> this is Dr. Paul talking decades ago about things that our founding fathers knew, about things that those who came before them knew. And, uh, you know, he's speaking there. <laughs> you barely the IRS armed. Now, what did we read? Now they're arming with submachine guns while they're attacking your right to have a semi-automatic rifle, and in some cases, handguns. They don't want you to have any of that stuff. Anyway, I wanted to play that. I thought I had pulled that up, and I went yesterday, and I said, well, man, I didn't even play that during the show. So I wanted to bring that up because some people are surprised to see that he was warning about that many years ago. All right, I'm going to take in, you know, one of the things I do is we'll read things in context. We'll keep things in, in, the, in the context that they're given. And one of the interesting things is, is that when you read through the book of Hebrews, the writer's ob obviously talking to Hebrews. That's, that's who he's writing to. And he's warning them, don't, you know, don't succumb to that temptation to go back to the old covenant stuff. Doesn't mean that it's not important. Paul says that all scriptures God breathed, and he was talking about the old, what we know as the Old Testament. All of that is. But the writer of Hebrews was saying, don't go back to it. Why? Because that's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's why there's a new covenant, because it's a covenant in his blood. Not the blood, you know, of the people being sprinkled on the book, not the commandments of stone, 
but rather the commands are in our hearts and we've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. So when, when the writer is writing here, he comes to this one chapter and he points back and he's saying, remember those who came before you. Remember those who came before you. And uh, we're going to look at this term that's used here of, in, at least in the King James, uh, in this chapter. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11. So any of you guys listening out there, you want to open up your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 11. And listen to what it says. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Okay, so when somebody tells you you just have blind faith, well, no Christian that I know has blind faith. Our faith is in historical reality. Why is that? Faithful men wrote down what they saw and heard as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, at least in the Scriptures. Outside the Scriptures, we have other men who've written about what went on as well. Okay? But they, they believed what Jesus had said. And remember, he said, you will be my what? My witnesses. Well, now, what does a witness do? Well, witness bears testimony to what they saw or heard in a particular case. So if you were a witness to a murder, obviously you'd be called in and say, okay, Mr. Brown, what did you see here? What did this person say? Did you see anybody else? You know, all kinds of questions that you're going to be asked about what you claim that you saw and to see if you're a faithful witness or whether you're just pulling their leg, okay? Our faith is in things that exist. But yet we have not seen. We have heard about, we have seen evidence of. He talks about that too. He talks about seeing the powers of the age to come, of what he's speaking of there, of the new, the new covenant age that's coming in, in Hebrews chapter 6. But he says that their faith, though it is in something that is real, there is this issue of we don't, we don't see. We don't see into that realm. All right? Then he goes back and he says, For by it, by what? Faith, right? For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. Hmm. Now, it's interesting the word that's used here uh, for report. Some have, have translated it, they were commended, they were applauded, but the word actually means to witness what I just talked about, to witness or to give evidence, to testify, to give a good report, is to bear a good testimony, be a faithful witness, as it were. And um, so he's talking about these elders, those who came before, the ancients, as some translations put it. The ancients had obtained a good report. Why? Because they had faith. Okay? They had faith. Then he goes on and he, he starts to give examples. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. In other words, we're, we're told in the scriptures, this is how it happened and we believe it. 
so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he, being dead, yet speaketh. So we see right off the bat, we've got the son of Adam and Eve, Abel. He came and he offered a more excellent gift. Was it because, I don't know, Abel did something very special to the gift? No, he just followed whatever the commands were that were passed down from his father, from God, about offering sacrifices. We don't have that record of what, of what all that entailed. Many people have argued that the fact is, is that God wanted a blood sacrifice um, and that Abel did that and Cain didn't. And so God came to Cain and he says, sin is crouched at your door. It's ready to, to pounce on you. You better be careful. And Cain went out and slew his brother. But Abel had a faithful witness, right? He had a he had obtained witness that he was righteous. Why? Because the evidence of his life demonstrated that he had the righteousness of God. He had the righteousness of God. Here's another one. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. That he pleased God. You know, there's not much written about Enoch himself within the scriptures, but it says that he was translated. Now, years ago, I heard a preacher say, well, what happened probably one day, you know, he's trying to explain it to his, his grandkids. He said, probably one day, you know, Enoch was walking along, talking with the Lord, and the Lord just basically said, my house is a little closer than yours. Why don't you come to my house? I don't know if that's how things went down, but he was translated so that he didn't see death. And that he, his testimony, what he bore, his good report was that he pleased God. And listen, when you have people telling you that, they're atheists, which there is no such thing. Romans 1 is our foundation. Every man knows there's a God, there's a creator, there's a lawgiver. Every man, every man knows this, but they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. It is the job of the believer to unsuppress it by proclaiming the truth. That's the whole thing. Now, that doesn't mean you have to get a megahorn and you have to shout really loud. It just means you have to proclaim it to those who will hear. And so. He's, he's one that pleased God. He bore a good testimony in his life, in his words, in his thoughts, everything about Enoch, from what we see, the little bit we see, that he pleased God. Then verse 6, that builds off of that. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And those, again, who will say, there is no God, or I don't know if there's God, when they do know it, they can never please him. Why? Because they don't believe he exists. Listen to what it says. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. And that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I mean, you have to know he's there. And in many cases, I find that those who 
will say that claim they're atheists or agnostics and stuff. Boy, when their life's threatened, they tend to straighten that up real quick. And, and I have seen that before. The problem many times is, is the quote-unquote church has done something to them, or they perceive it, or they perceive that God's done something bad to them. And so they don't want anything to do with God, and so they try to cast him from their mind, but they can't. But listen, friend, if you're in that situation, it's impossible to ever please him and find the righteousness you so desperately need if you don't acknowledge that he's there and believe that he would forgive your sin and that he would set you right. Then he goes on. The writer puts it to Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. I mean, again, you've got one guy, builds an ark, 120 years proclaims to the people God's judgment, and God's remedy. And at the end of that time, the, the only people he's taken in the ark with him is his wife, his three sons, and their wives, and a whole boatload of animals. That's it. And God judged the rest of the world. He, he, he judged the rest of the world, but he cared and saved his own. Verse 8, by Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He didn't have his eyes fixed upon Egypt. He didn't have his eyes fixed upon, you know, a city that was built in that day. He was looking for the heavenly Jerusalem. And you know what? That little posted stamp piece of land that God gave, that he promised Abraham that hundreds of years later he would give to his descendants, was the down payment on the entirety. It was a down payment on the entirety of the earth. Because not only are we those who inherit the earth, as Jesus said in Matthew, in the, uh, the Beatitudes, but we're inheritors of all things that are Christ. We are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And so Abraham's getting this. He's believing God, even though it's not tangible to him, even though he can't sit there and hold on to all of it or even obtain it, that it comes later to his descendants. But he believes God in what he says. He goes on and he says, Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Remember, God had given them a promise. You're going to have a son. They said, oh, well, we'll work this out. And so Sarah says, well, we're both old. And um, why don't you have my handmaid? 
And there's a lesson there in that, too. The free woman and the bond woman. We read about that in the book of Galatians. So Abraham does as his wife says, obtains a son through the handmaid, Ishmael. And God says, no, 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 that's not, that's, that's not the one I'm going to bring the promise through. I'm going to bring it through you and your wife. I'll, I'll bless the boy, but he's not part of this covenant. And God did as he said. And what happened? Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, the child of promise. Again, referenced in the book of Galatians. He's the one who opened Sarah's womb, you know, in her 90s. I'd like that to happen, ladies. <laughs> uh, I think many women are over that by the time they're about 50 or so, but some still have children into that, and then praise God for it. But, uh, boy, 90, and you're in that situation. But it's God's promise, and he delivered exactly what he promised. He was faithful, and that's how Sarah saw him. Even though she laughed at first, she judged him faithful who had promised. Verse 12, Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead. So many, and then he's talking about Isaac because, you know, God told Abraham to go and to sacrifice his son to him. And God, and Abraham perceived that God could raise him from the dead. So he said, he's as good as dead. So many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand, which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith not having received the promises. They believed the promises, but they never obtained those promises, not in this life. But having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, which we are. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, and heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. See here, listen, listen to what he says. Offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Do you see the picture of the father and the son here in Abraham and Isaac? Yep. Yep, you absolutely see it. Of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. See, I, I, I heard a guy one time, he was a friend of mine, he was saying, you know, Abraham is kind of walking up there towards the mountain, him and Isaac, and he's just, he's all concerned. And That's not what the scripture says. Scripture says, he, he told Isaac what was going on. This is what we're going to go do. Both of them journeyed right up the mountain. There's no talk about hand wringing. There's no talk about worry. And then we come to the book of Hebrews, and what does it say? Accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received in him a figure. See, Isaac became sort of a type of Christ in the scenario here, and that he was to be sacrificed. And yet, what, do we, what did we find out? 
God was just testing Abraham to see if he would be faithful. And Abraham believed that God had the power of life and death and that he could raise, he could raise Isaac from the dead should he carry that out. But what did God do? Did God have Abraham murder his son? No. Nope. No. Nope. He provided a lamb in his place. Again, all throughout the scripture, what did Jesus say? Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets, they all speak about me. They must be fulfilled because they speak about me. That's what he said. Back over to Hebrews 11, verse 20. And by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of departing of the children of Israel. So he's telling them exactly what the promise that God gave to Abraham several hundred years before, or not several hundred years before, I'm, I'm sorry, that would, that would take place several hundred years later. He's telling them about that because God said they would go into captivity and then they would be brought out. And so Joseph, he was Pharaoh down in Egypt, or he was lifted up under Pharaoh, excuse me, and by faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. And you go back and you read the Exodus account, and what is the one thing that you see that happens during the Exodus? Well, you see them taking up the bones of Joseph out of the land of Egypt and carrying them with them to bury where they're journeying. So even he had faith that God would deliver the people in the time frame that he had given. And surely his father must have taught him, and before him his father him, and before him Abraham had passed that down. Then we read about Moses. Now Moses is, most po is the most popular in the Jewish culture at the time, obviously. And so the writer of Hebrews is addressing Besides Abraham, um, sorry about that, but he's addressing Moses. I mean, this is the guy they're all pointing to, right? Moses and Abraham, those are the two main characters they, they point to. But he says this, by, Mo by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Hmm. So, his parents even had faith in this matter. Because what was the command? It was to kill any male that was born. You can save the, the girls, but you're to kill the males. And what did Moses' mom do? Well, she put him in a little reed basket, sent him down the river, and in God's providence, where did she end up? Of all places, in the Pharaoh's house. And he was brought up that way. But mom had faith. And because she had faith to let him go in such a manner, and you got to understand, she's dropping Moses off in the Nile. <laughs> There's crocodiles in there. That's usually what would happen with these other Hebrew male children. If they were to be thrown in, they would have been eaten by crocodiles. Of course, we know that the handmaids had come and helped the women deliver those male children. And stood with them, and God blessed them as a result. He gave them, he gave them their own families. 
Here was mom being faithful in taking care of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He knew who he was. He knew he didn't belong there in the palace, but that was God's providence. He knew he belonged with the people of God. In fact, it says in the next verse, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Listen, friends, there's pleasure in sin. There is. Or the Bible wouldn't talk about it. It wouldn't be fun to do. It wouldn't even be a temptation if there wasn't enjoyment in it. But it's only for a season. And for some people, they don't even get a season. They don't even get a season in it. Some things that they participate in that are sinful lead to their death. Like, real quick. Not over a period of years or things like this. Their life is stolen real quick. There is that. But Moses chose the reproach of Christ greater than any riches that Pharaoh could offer him or the treasures that are in Egypt. He didn't want to suffer with the sinful pleasures. He wanted to leave that, and he wanted to suffer with the people of God. In fact, it goes on, it said, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than rich, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He saw that, one, that while one promised certain treasures and, and riches in this life, he was looking beyond to that which Christ offered. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That's that, that part back up there at the first where we talk about those things that are not seen. The evidence of things not seen. He could look beyond what was put before him in a very similar manner of what was put up to Jesus. If you just bow down to me, Jesus, see all the kingdoms of the world, I'll give them to you. Moses was not willing to do that. Rather, he was willing to suffer. Again, another picture of the Christ. He goes on and he says, um, <clears throat> By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. I mean, what kind of persons go out and some guy, let's say some guy comes to you today and he goes, look, there's going to be something that comes through the land and it's going to kill the firstborn in every house. Okay. He tells you, I want you to take and set this lamb aside a certain amount of days. I want you to inspect it, make sure there's no blemishes in it, doesn't have a broken leg, any of this kind of stuff. And then I want you to slaughter it. I want you to take the blood of it with hyssop, and I want you to put it on the, the doorpost on either side and on the top. And then I want you to burn that or cook it, cook everything out of it, and I want you to eat it with your family with bitter herbs, and I want you to partake of that. And if you don't do that, the firstborn in your house is going to die. What a, what a picture here. Daniel Greenfield, he, um, 
Daniel Greenfield, he wrote a thing years ago. Now, he's a Jewish guy, okay? But he wrote this beautiful thing on the Passover. I mean, it was just beautiful what, what was written. But he doesn't see the fulfillment of Christ. He's still looking for a Christ. And Christ has already come. And I, I tell you, I, I could have probably just finished off the, the end with, here's the fulfillment of Christ. It's in, you see it in the Passover. How he guards. What does he do? He saves us from death, does he not? Yeah, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, right? The one who believes in me, though he lives, he'll never die. And if he dies, he'll live. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, where we are overcomers. We can look back and we say, oh, grave, where's your sting? Death, where's, you know, where's your power at? You have none. Because Christ has taken it away for his people. And so here's what he does. He goes back on. And again, the Passover is just this beautiful, I mean, even where the, the markings of where the blood goes on the doorpost are in the shape, if you follow them, of the cross. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea, as by dry land, with the Egyptians saying to do, we're drowned. Boy, I mean, in all honesty, why is there not that kind of faith that we see today? No, we have to, look, I'm all for, for, for arming up and stuff against invaders, aggressors, people who would do us harm. I'm, I'm for that. But at the same time, where is this where is this understanding that God is able, if he was able to take care of the armies of Pharaoh against an, you know, his people who are crossing the Red Sea, can he not take care of ours too? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. That doesn't decline our that doesn't deny our duty. We have a duty, especially in this country, because the government is supposed to be the people. It's not been, it's been the government of tyrants. And that's because the people have been dumbed down. They've, they've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten the God of their fathers. And that's the God behind all of these men that we're reading off, by the way. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. And I got to tell you, the more I learn about certain things and how the world works, I think God in his wisdom knows exactly how those things are because he put them in place. And he's telling that he told the people there to do certain things so that his power might be manifest in Jericho there. To the point that the walls fell in. By faith, the harlot Rahab. Perish not with them that believe not when she had received the spies with peace. You remember Jesus said it was the harlots and the outcasts would go into the kingdom before the Pharisees would. And here's Rahab. Remember what she did? Spies came into land to scout it out and see what was going on. Come back with a report. Son, you got 10 with the bad report. You got two with the good report. You see the testimony that's going on there? Ten testify, oh, yeah, it's a nice land, but man, there's giants here. There's just no way we... And the other two come back testifying 
of the God who had just, he had just delivered them out of the hands of Pharaoh, out of slavery in Egypt, and saying, yeah, it's good land, and we can take it. And even though there's giants there, they're like a piece of cake, man. They're a piece of cake in our hand. Well, Rahab took the spies and hid them. She hid them. And she even misdirected the guys who came looking for them. And they spared her and her house. Anybody who was in her house, and she had that scarlet thread. Notice the color of the scarlet. The color of blood hanging in her house. That's how they would identify. Anybody in the house was safe. Anybody outside the house, you're open targets. That's what they did. And by the way, she became the great, 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 great grandma in the line of Jesus. And what shall I say more? He wants to just pile on some names here. For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Remember that guy? Had all these soldiers and God sent a bunch of them home. Why? Because he wanted to demonstrate he was the one bringing the victory. So Gideon and his 300 men went out with torches and pots over the torches and some horns. And that's how they fought their battle. The sword of the Lord and Gideon. Or Barak. Remember him from the book of Judges as well? I, I mean, he, he's got to be prodded along by Deborah. By the way, folks, that Deborah didn't go and do what the king was to do. She gave him a message, and he said, well, it, you know, if you'll go up with me, I'll, I'll go. And she basically said, I'll go with you, but you got you got to do the duty here. You're the man. You're the one God has in charge. And he does, and he defeats Israel's enemies. What about Samson? Yep, Samson's listed right there. You know, Samson wasn't the, the most moral of men. He was a man set apart. He had, you know, his parents had produced this, this, this man that God used mightily who had a Nazarite vow. He didn't cut his hair. He didn't drink wine, didn't eat grapes. None of that stuff. But he broke his vow. And why did he break his vow? Does anybody remember? He broke his vow because he was messing around with a woman who was outside of Israel. Delilah. And so what happens to Samson? Well, as long as he kept his vow, God gave him strength. And he beat the Philistines. Single-handedly beat them. With the jawbone of an ass. I mean, that's what he that's what he got up and he whipped them. <laughs> but he did that. When he broke the vow, when he told Delilah how to sap his strength, what happened? Well, she shaved his head, they put out his eyes, they caught him, they put out his eyes, they made him nothing more than a mule to work their meal. And then when they were gonna praise their gods in their temple. They brought Samson in to mock him and make fun of him and make fun of the living God. And Samson's hair had begun to grow back. He was still blind, but he said, Lord, let me take out these guys. Give me, give me your spirit one more time. And he put his hands against the pillars and he pushed the pillars over, killing him and all of those who were there to mock 
the God of Israel. He did that by faith. And I'm going to tell you, I, there's some of these guys you got to have in your mind. You kind of wonder, was Samson this big muscle-bound man that you know we see in the pictures, or was he just a, you know, just a fit guy? Just a regular fit guy that you wouldn't say, you know, could do all the things he did. How did he, because the power's got to be seen in the God who works in and through him. And that's the way it is with all of these guys. Check this one out. Jephthah. Here's up against the king of Ammon. And he makes a really rash vow about sacrificing the first thing that comes out of his house, I don't know what he was thinking here, if the Lord would deliver them. The Lord delivers them. He goes home. What's the first thing out of his house? His daughter. But he believed God. He's thrown right in here. He's thrown right in here in the midst of this that he believed God for what he would accomplish. What about David and Samuel and of the prophets? Were they perfect men? In the righteousness of Christ, they were perfect. But we can see their flaws. And here's what happened. He used David, didn't he? Establishing a covenant with David that his throne would be forever. That coming from him would be the one who would sit on that throne forever. Samuel. The faithful prophet, though his sons weren't faithful, he was in leading Israel. And of the other prophets who faithfully came from all walks of life, not necessarily schooled and trained in the finest seminaries of the time, but they were faithful to the word of God. And they gave it even when it cost them their life. They were faithful witnesses. They had a good report. Then he says this, these guys that he's just referenced, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. I mean, how many people could we name off and, and give names to where this actually occurred throughout the Old Testament? Escaped the edge of the sword, out of the weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And no, it's not talking about little guys in flying saucers. It's talking about foreigners. Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. No, they were, they were fine with bearing those sufferings. Paul, you read about him in the New Testament, he says the same thing. Talks about, in, we read this yesterday, enduring as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And all those who want to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. So we see women receive their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. They're not putting it qualitative between you and I and them. That's not what he's saying. But he's talking about that which 
comes forth from their good report, from their testimony of their faith in the God who saves sinners, the one who made all things. And then we read, And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. I don't know where, look, I don't know where the guys come from who talk about, you know, your best life yet and all this kind of stuff. I, I, I think that's far into the scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we ought to have abundant life. Uh, Jesus came and promised that, not just to give us life, but that more abundant. Do I think we ought to look after ourselves? Yes, I do. Do I think we ought to seek to grow in the world and expand that kingdom mindset in the hearts and minds of those around us? Yes, absolutely. And there's a variety of ways to do that. But there are some... We're facing these kinds of things. And if, look, no matter what we possess in this world, whether it's a little or a lot, we have God to thank for that. But those things should be held with an open hand that we're ready to leave them behind at any moment. These, many of these, were well off. They were wealthy. You can read about them. Abraham, David, Solomon. Read any of these guys. And then some were not. Some were just mere farmers. Yet they were all faithful. And whatever they had, they were willing to leave it behind and follow after what the Lord had called them to do. Even to the point of being stoned, sawn in sunder, sawn asunder, slain with the sword. They're put in sheepskins and goatskins. This is much like... Uh, some things they even, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken, they even did this in the days of Rome. They would put the people in an animal skin and bring out a predator for that particular animal that would basically rip them apart. That was, I mean, you're talking about cruel and unusual punishment here. They were destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Of whom the world was not worthy. Oh, don't you like that? We're coming up on the crescendo here. Of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report, remember, they, they, they gave a good testimony, through faith, received not the promise. They never saw the promise of the Messiah. They never saw the promise of his kingdom. But it was in their hearts. That's what their faith was in. The God who had made promises, of which Titus says, that he is the God who cannot lie. Who's he making a promise to? The Father made a promise to the Son that he would be the Savior of men and that his inheritance would span the earth, that he would be King of the nations. And that he would redeem man as well as creation. That was the promise that God gave 
God the Father gave to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And did he fulfill it? Yep, he sure did. He sure did. The Bible says that he took the demons and he made an open spectacle of them on the cross. And he took the oracles that were written against us and he nailed them to that cross. And these people were testifying of that reality that was to come before them. We now testify of that reality that is behind us. Jesus isn't Messiah anymore. He's king. He's finished his Messiah work. He's done that. He's completed that. But he's king now. And the command of the king to his subjects all over the world, every living man, woman, boy, and girl, is that they repent of their sin and they bow their knee to the one and only king, and that is King Jesus. The writer of Hebrews finishes off with this. And let me pick up verse 39 just so we have that context because it keeps running here. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us. See the difference? He's talking about them. And he says, God having provided some better thing for us. He's, right, he's talking to the Hebrews. That they without us should not be made perfect. In other words, we're gonna we're all one, we're all gonna be, we're one in Christ. And we have better promises because we got a better covenant. And that was established by the Lord Jesus. It's not, as the as chapter 10 will tell you right before, it's not about the blood of bulls and goats that take that takes away sin. It never did. But the blood of Christ takes away sin. The blood of Christ takes away transgressions of God's law. Have you transgressed God's law? Yeah, you have. Go through the Ten Commandments. Read them. Look at how they apply to your heart and your thought life. If you've crossed the line in that, Jesus says, then you've crossed the line with the law. And if you've broken the law in one place, you've broken the whole thing. And that's why you need a Savior and the only one that's given a name among men whereby we can be saved is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. There's nobody else. Guys, listen, I hope this is encouraging to you because you look back and you see men who are faithful. Let's be faithful men and women of God today and see what God will do with us. All right, Bradley, be with you at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central. SonsLibertyMedia.com. Lord willing, I'm going to have James Roguski on in the morning. See you then.